This podcast is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. For more Rand analysis, reports, and commentary on issues at the forefront of today's policy debate, visit www.rand.org. All right, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, today's briefing is being recorded. A video will be available online at www.rand.org. Or you can listen to today's discussion by subscribing to RAND's Congressional Briefing Series podcast on iTunes. Welcome to this RAND Congressional Briefing. I'm Wynne Burkle. I head up uh, the RAND Corporation's Office of Congressional Relations here in Washington, D.C. Let me tell you briefly about RAND. The RAND Corporation is a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. RAND focuses on the issues that matter most, such as health, education, national security, international affairs, law and uh, and business, the environment, and more. As a nonpartisan organization, RAND operates independent of political and commercial pressures. We serve the public interest by helping lawmakers reach informed decisions on the nation's most pressing challenges. RAND disseminates its findings and its recommendations as widely as possible in order to benefit the public good. It's part of our mission. More than 10,000 RAND reports and commentary are available free online at www.rand.org. Today you're going to hear from a distinguished panel of three RAND experts who will endeavor to explore three questions on a very timely topic, how to defuse Iran's nuclear threat. Let me introduce the three panelists before we begin. Starting us off today will be Lynn Davis. Lynn is a senior political scientist at RAND and serves as director of RAND's Washington office. From 93 to 1997, she served as undersecretary of state for arms control and international security affairs, Her current research focuses on strategic planning, terrorism, citizen preparedness, and defense strategy and force structure issues. She was the senior study group advisor uh, for the Commission on National Security slash 21st Century. Prior to joining State Department, Lynn was vice president and director of RAND's Arroyo Center for the United States Army. She's also served on the staffs of the Secretary of Defense, National Security Council, and the first Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. Davis's recent RAND publications include Iran's Nuclear Future, Critical U.S. Policy Choices, which I think you would have seen a copy of out front. If you're interested in copies, please uh, write, write your name underneath that, uh, that book. So next uh, to speak after Lynn will be uh, Ali Reza Nader. Uh, Ali Reza uh, Ali is a senior intelli- international policy analyst at the RAND Corporation and lead co-author of Coping with the Nuclearizing Iran, also copies which were outside uh, you can sign up for. His research is focused on Iran's political dynamics, elite decision-making, and Iranian foreign policy. Uh, His other RAND publications include Israel and Iran, a dangerous rivalry. Next, we'll hear from Jim Dobbins. Ambassador Dobbins is the director of the RAND International Security and Defense Policy Center. Jim has held State Department and White House posts, including Assistant Secretary of State for Europe, Special Assistant to the President, Special Advisor to the President, and Secretary of State for the Balkans, and ambassador to the European community. Uh, Jim has had numerous crisis management and diplomatic troubleshooting assignments as the Clinton and G.W. Bush administration special envoy for Afghanistan, Kosovo, Bosnia, Haiti, and Somalia. Diplomatic assignments uh, include the withdrawal of American forces from Somalia, the American-led multilateral intervention in Haiti, the stabilization and reconstruction of Bosnia, and the NATO intervention in Kosovo. 
He represented the United States at the Bonn Conference that established the new Afghan government, and on December 16, 2001, he raised the flag over the newly reopened U.S. Embassy there. He is also co-author, along with Ali, of the RAND Report, Coping with a Nuclearizing Iran. The three panelists being addressed today, uh, the three questions being addressed today by our panelists will be, what are Iran's real intentions and capabilities to threaten American and Israeli interests? Number two, can any diplomatic, economic, or military efforts curb Iranian ambitions as long as the current Iranian leadership remains in power, and what are the prospects for changing that leadership? And lastly, if military action can slow but not halt Iran's nuclear program, as American officials have stated, shouldn't policymakers begin considering optimal long-term policies that would address Iran's likely development of nuclear weapons capability? Is it realistic for U.S. policymakers to exclude deterrence and containment as possible long-term strategies for dealing with this threat? With that, let me turn it over to Lynn Davis to start us off. Well, let me... Let me say thanks to everybody for, for coming. We have uh, obviously an important topic, and we have some ideas to share with you, but mostly we'll be interested in having a discussion once we sort of lead off with a few of these uh, sort of critical ideas. The study that we did um, about a year ago focused on Iran's nuclear future and particularly looked at different choices that the United States has with respect to dissuading Iran from developing nuclear weapons, um, if, if Iran were to acquire nuclear weapons, how might we deter their use of those nuclear weapons? And finally, how do we reassure our partners with our different approaches to our nuclear policy towards Iran? And so while we focused on choices, we have um, a few findings that I would like to kind of share with you to get um, our discussion underway. So when we think about how to either dissuade Iran from gaining nuclear weapons or to deterring their use into the future, what we're talking about is how we might influence Iran. And so that sort of asks the question, you know, does, how, does Iran, how does Iran make decisions and do they do this in a sort of rational way, looking at the costs and benefits? And in our view, yes, the Iranian government does sort of look at issues, um, assess the costs and benefits, and then come to their own decisions about the various activities that they undertake. And in this case, whether they would um, move from their current program enriching um, nuclear materials to actually developing a nuclear weapon. So first, you know, they, they take these decisions looking at costs and benefits. When they focus on their own national security interests and look to how to preserve their nation and also their regime, which is sort of the critical points of their national security interests, um, they could see uh, an important role for nuclear weapons. Um, they haven't actually decided yet to take that step, in, in our view, in the view of the com inte intelligence community. Um, but what we also know is that there's an internal debate going on inside Iran with respect to what happens in that program. And so that provides the United States with, with some leverage. Um, to maybe influence Iran as they think about their choices into the future. 
So when one thinks about how to influence Iran, so we lay out sort of three different approaches based on sort of what is motivating Iran in terms of its, its nuclear program. And so um, sort of one approach is that Iran really responds to threats and to pressures. And so it's going to be very important in our own approach to, to raise those pressures, raise those threats. So that's sort of one approach to influencing Iran. Another approach to influencing Iran is to find ways to deny them the potential benefits of acquiring nuclear weapons, that is, to, to find ways to show that they will not be gaining from that program and could actually have some real costs. And a third approach to trying to influence Iran would be to say that they're primarily motivated by their own sort of insecurities and fears. And so then an approach might focus on how it is to relieve them of, in a sense, the threats or their insecurities with respect to United States actions. So those are sort of different ways to think about an approach and the different means that we might, might have to influencing Iran. I think it's fair to say that the political environment suggests that you know, there's more support for keeping up pressure on Iran and denying them the benefits than there is in trying to reduce their sense of threats. But one of the conclusions of our study is that it's important to think through the different approaches, and it may be that putting less pressure on the Iranian regime could actually be useful in affecting their internal debate, and that there may be trade-offs in how we see the different approaches that the United States might undertake. So that sort of sets the stage, sort of with our findings and, and these choices. It's at a, a level that you know, now needs to be taken to sort of the reality of what's happening in Iran, you know, what's kind of on their mind, what kind of debate is actually going on, and so I'm going to turn to my colleague to pick up on that next question. Thanks, Lynn. Uh, good afternoon. I'm just going to briefly talk about Tehran's perspective and uh, how potentially Iranian leaders view not just the nuclear program, but negotiations with the United States and the P5 plus one. Uh, this is important because we have the upcoming talks in Moscow. And uh, we had the talks in Baghdad, and both talks have been uh, described as being critical to reaching a solution to the Iranian nuclear crisis, a peaceful solution perhaps. There are indications that the Iranian leadership, including the Supreme Leader Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, uh, is open to some sort of compromise. Uh, a couple of months ago, I believe, uh, Khamenei made a speech, and he praised President Obama from uh, stepping from the brink of war uh, with Iran. A number of other Iranian officials have made positive remarks. Uh, some of these officials are very anti-American and conservative. And Iran has approached the talks in Baghdad and in Moscow uh, with a different attitude. And uh, various diplomats have noted that uh, the Iranian side has been more constructive and positive and has decided to actually uh, discuss the nuclear issue specifically, which was not the case for a few years. Uh, Iran didn't really want to talk about the specifics. Uh, also, I think internal developments in Iran in the last year or two have facilitated Iran's 
more open attitude toward ne negotiations. Uh, the president, Ahmadinejad, has lost a lot of power from within the system. Uh, he challenged uh, Khamenei um, uh, a year or so ago, and uh, this was a very public conflict between the two men, and Ahmadinejad came out as a loser. The Revolutionary Guards turned against him. Uh, in, in 2009, um, a potential deal between the P5 plus one and Iran fell through the TRR deal, the Tehran uh, reactor deal. And one of the reasons cited uh, is um, basically the divisions within the system, that a lot of figures within Iran did not want Ahmadinejad to benefit uh, from a compromise and a potential win on the nuclear program. Now, uh, Khamenei has consolidated power. Um, the Iranian parliamentary elections just took place. He is going to be the key decision maker on the nuclear program. And um, Khamenei has uh, admitted that sanctions against Iran are taking a toll. He's, he's uh, described them as being harsh, crippling, as a number of other officials. And uh, we can assume that uh, because of these sanctions, especially sanctions against the Iranian Central Bank, uh, the upcoming European oil embargo uh, that's uh, set to take place in July, that Khamenei realizes that the costs are increasing and he might be more and amenable to some sort of compromise. Uh, he seems to be listening to more uh, or less ideological figures within the system, like the former president, Ayatollah Rafsanjani, who just came out again and said, Iran needs to deal with the United States. Iran needs to talk to the United States. But we also have to look at uh, Khamenei's worldview. Uh, uh, what kind of man is Khamenei? What kind of leader is Khamenei? What is his ideology? Uh, Khamenei, based on his speeches, uh, his writings, uh, which have been relatively consistent, has described uh, Iran as being uh, locked in an existential conflict with the United States. Uh, he has specifically said that the United States does not just oppose Iranian policies, uh, that the United States opposes the very essence of the Islamic Republic, that the United States will never accept the Iranian Revolution of 1979. Uh, for him, the nuclear program is an essential component of his regime's conflict with the United States. And there are a number of uh, reasons why Iran uh, could be pursuing a potential uh, nuclear weapons capability. Uh, the most important, perhaps, is an issue of deterrence. Iran uh, is surrounded by U.S. forces. Uh, it has a relatively weak conventional military capability. It sees itself as being very vulnerable. Um, that past history, like the Iran-Iraq war, has shown Iranian leaders potentially uh, that they need uh, uh, a deterrent against superior forces. Uh, the nuclear program is also a matter of power and prestige. Iran wants to be seen as uh, the dominant power in the Persian Gulf and the wider Middle East. Uh, but there's also an issue of revolutionary and nationalist pride. When Khamenei talks about uh, the nuclear program. He talks about Iran's uh, scientific achievements, uh, especially in the face of its increasing isolation and sanctions. Uh, he, he mentions scientific progress uh, repeatedly and consistently. And for him, the nuclear program, Iran's ability to enrich uranium, uh, is a sign of success for the revolution, despite all the odds. Of course, uh, there are other figures and uh, constituents and political actors uh, within the system, and uh, Lynn um, re uh, referred to this, that don't necessarily view the nuclear program or a nuclear weapons capability the same way. Uh, more 
pragmatic figures like Raf Sanjani and reformists and those who want to open up Iran's economy and its political system to the outside world uh, realize that the nuclear program has also very high costs. And uh, they talk about this uh, repeatedly as well, that Iran should be careful about the costs. It should uh, take heed of sanctions uh, Etc. So the key question going into the Moscow talks is, uh, will Khamenei uh, give in to pressure? Will he uh, compromise? As Lynn said, he's a, a man who makes decisions on a cost-benefit uh, calculation. He knows sanctions are hurting Iran's economy. Uh, he faces instability in Iran. Uh, in 2009, we saw millions of Iranians going to the streets uh, to protest a presidential election. Um, so there is real pain associated uh, with the nuclear program and Iran's policy. Uh, but Khamenei also may believe that time is on his side. Uh, he sees the Arab uprisings across the Middle East as uh, really weakening U.S. power in the region. He doesn't call them Arab uprisings. He calls them the Islamic awakening. And this is what Iranian officials refer to um, uh, repeatedly. Uh, they see Iran's own revolution as having inspired these uprisings. Uh, Khamenei and Iranian leaders also uh, believe that uh, U.S. power globally is in decline because of the global financial crisis. And, uh, you know, they may be saying this for political purposes, but I, I think to a large extent, uh, given Khamenei's mindset and the mindset of his advisors, that he really believes uh, time could be on Iran's side despite uh, the pressures and the pains. Uh, also, Khamenei, um, because he has consolidated power, he tends not to listen to a lot of advice uh, from outside of his inner circle of advisors. And uh, his advisors tend to be uh, members of the top uh, echelon of the Revolutionary Guards. They tend to be very ideological. Their experience, uh, national security, has been formed by the Iran-Iraq War. So they may be more interested and uh, Iran having a potential nuclear weapons capability. It doesn't have to be an actual uh, uh, weapons capability where Iran assembles the weapons. Iran doesn't have to assemble the weapons. It could have a virtual or latent capability uh, where it could dash to a nuclear weapons, um, to the assembly of weapons if it needs, uh, needs to. Um. And uh, the, the U.S. intelligence community, as Lynn mentioned, uh, it's the assessment of the intelligence community that Iran has not made the political uh, decision to weaponize the program. Uh, in fact, uh, Khamenei recently uh, again said that he does not want nuclear weapons, that nuclear weapons are un-Islamic um, and against his religious views and the uh, views of his regime. So even if he's not sincere, uh, if he's saying this for political effect, he has drawn a sort of a red line for his regime. Uh, if he uh, decides to weaponize the nuclear program, uh, then he has to explain why he changed his mind. And it's not as easy uh, as some might assume. So I think this is where the bright spot is. And Jim will talk about uh, U.S. options uh, toward Iran. But uh, we still have a chance to dissuade Iran from weaponizing its program. Uh, sanctions are weakening the Iranian economy. Uh, they are uh, increasing the cost of the nuclear program. And when we look at Iran, we have to take into consideration the long-term U.S. policy toward Iran, not just the nuclear uh, weapons program, but the kind of country uh, we want um, uh, Iran to be in the future, what kind of relations uh, we would like ha to have with Iran. And I think when we look at Iran as a country, as a society, 
uh, some of the long-term trends are positive. You have a population that is youthful, that wants to be engaged uh, with the outside world, that does not necessarily support nuclear weapons, although Iranians largely uh, support the enrichment program. They don't necessarily uh, produce weapons. You have a population that wants better relations with the United States and regional countries. And uh, the Iranian regime, despite calling the Arab uprisings uh, the Islamic awakening, is also vulnerable to the very same forces that have seen the toppling of pro-United uh, States regimes across the region. Uh, wh- whether those uh, factors are economic or a lack of legitimacy, uh, the regime remains vulnerable to those issues. Uh, so when we look at Iran, I think the long-term trends are more positive than the short-term trends. Thank you. Thanks, Ali. Um, we're here talking today based on three RAND studies. Lynn uh, talked about uh, the first of these, which looks at uh, American alternatives for dealing uh, with Iran. Uh, Ali and, and uh, colleagues at RAND produced a second study, which look at uh, Iranian-Israeli relations. Um, uh, uh, and um, then Ali and I uh, collaborated on a third study, which comes to some conclusions about American policy toward Iran and makes some specific uh, recommendations. And I'll be talking about uh, the third of these. Um, I want to concentrate uh, initially on the, on the uh, question of the utility, both of threats of use of force and the use of force in, in this situation. Uh, with respect to threats, what we're talking about is coercive diplomacy, that is, employing a threat in order to secure some behavior change. Um, and uh, to, be, to be candid, a coercive diplomacy has a fairly poor record. Uh, it's, seldom, it, it's more likely to get the backup of your adversary than it is to secure the desired behavior. I think a look at recent history illustrates this. In 1991, uh, the United States uh, threatened uh, Saddam Hussein uh, that if he, didn't, uh, if he didn't get out of Kuwait, we'd throw him out. He didn't, we did. In 1999, uh, the United States threatened uh, Serbian President Milosevic that if he didn't get out of Kosovo, we'd throw him out. He didn't, we did. In 2001, the United States threatened uh, Mullah Omar that if he didn't uh, expel uh, bin Laden from Afghanistan, we would invade and overthrow his regime. He didn't, we did. In 2003, we again threatened um, uh, Saddam Hussein uh, that if he didn't persuade us that he had abandoned WMD, we would, inv- we would invade and overthrow his regime. He didn't, we did. Now, in all of these cases, the threat to use force was much more credible than the threat today to use force against Iran. We had assembled the forces, we had deployed them, we had secured broad international coalitions, but uh, the threats were highly credible. And the regimes we were threatening were much weaker than the Iranian regime, and yet it didn't produce the desired result. So experience suggests that coercive diplomacy, that is the threat to use force, doesn't usually uh, secure the desired behavior. It leads not to to accommodation, but to war in most cases. That's not an argument not to threaten uh, the use of armed force. If you're going to use armed force, it's reasonable to provide fair warning. It's reasonable to make clear to the world and to the American public that you've exhausted every uh, other avenue um, and, and that's why the U.S. Uh, often uh, engages in these kinds of ultimatum before uh, employing force. Um, uh, but uh, it, it's not a useful tool of diplomacy if your objective is to secure compliance with some particular demand. Uh, 
Um, uh, one might ask why the Israelis recently have been so vocal in threatening to use armed force, uh, given uh, this record. And it, it's my view that the Israelis are uh, quite cognizant that their threats will have little or no impact on Iran, and that they're not intended, in fact, to have impact on Iran. Uh, the Israeli practice over, his, over their history has not been issuing ultimatum and making explicit their intentions. It's, on the, on the contrary, uh, employing surprise uh, in order to support their military operations. This was certainly the case when they took out the Iraqi uh, uh, nuclear facility in Osirak and when they took out the Syrian reactor uh, more recently. Um, uh, I think many analysts believe that if the Israelis were actually about to use force, they wouldn't be talking about it as much as they are. The Israeli threats, however, are extremely effective. They're designed to influence American behavior, European behavior, Chinese behavior, Russian behavior, everybody who wants a, a peaceful Middle East, continued access to Middle East oil, and the, Irani and the Israelis are threatening um, to interfere with that in serious ways, which is producing uh, a, a stronger coalition, greater sanctions. Um, so I'd have to say that it's a fairly successful policy instrument in this sense. Let me talk, uh, move from the threats of force to the actual use of force. Um, uh, uh, many people who are concerned about an Iranian reaction to the use of force talk about uh, steps that Iran might take, including closing the Straits of Hormuz, interfering with oil shipments from the Middle East, attacking Israeli and American targets uh, in the Middle East and in Israel. Um, uh, frankly, I think that we would be able to cope with those, that kind of reaction without uh, too much difficulty. I think if the Iranians went down that road, it would consolidate the international coalition against them. It would further isolate them. It would further uh, 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 increase the pressures that they're under. Um, I'm somewhat concerned about an opposite Iranian reaction. I think all analysts, including analysts who favor the use of military force, I believe that one effect would be that Iran would redouble its efforts to gain nuclear weapons and probably make the decision that it hasn't made yet to cross that threshold as soon as they could. Um, but what happens if the Iranians react with some degree of moderation to an attack, take it to the Security Council, begin to isolate us instead of themselves, begin to um, undermine the international coalition, begin to undermine the international sanctions that they're under? I think that an unprovoked attack on Iran, whether from Israel or the United States, might well produce that kind of response, and I think that could be very dangerous in terms of facilitating long-term uh, Iranian access to nuclear weapons. So if, if threatening force and using force um, uh, are not likely to, dis uh, to achieve the desired effects, what's the alternative? Uh, President uh, Obama has said that he rejects uh, what he called uh, containment as a strategy for Iran. I, I think that was something of a misnomer. Containment has been our policy since 1979. Whether Iran has nuclear weapons or not, we're certainly going to continue to try to contain its influence in the region. I think what he probably meant to say is that he, re he rejects a reliance on deterrence to contain Iran. Um, that is to say, a threat to retaliate against any Iranian use of nuclear weapons as a means of ensuring that they don't use nuclear weapons. 
Um, so a big question is, you know, would containment work with respect to Iran? There's been lots written on it. I'm not going to rehearse it all. Um, I, I, I would note that it, that it worked with respect to the Soviet Union. It worked with respect to uh, communist China, much more powerful countries with much more megalomaniac leadership. I mean, if you compare Stalin and Mao to Khamenei, Khamenei gets the prize for stability, good sense, and pragmatism in that particular competition. Um, and interestingly, neither the Soviet Union nor China became more aggressive when they gained nuclear weapons. China went to war with the United States before it had nuclear weapons and never went to war again with the United States after it had nuclear weapons. Nearly all of the Soviet Union's gains uh, geopolitical gains, its empire was assembled before it had nuclear weapons and while the United States had a nuclear monopoly. So while Iran might well become more aggressive or more adventurous, if you will, if it had nuclear weapons, I don't think we should assume that's an effect of achieving nuclear weapons. Historically, it hasn't been. Um, uh, one also has to look at what Iran's neighbors are concerned about with respect to Iran. They're not concerned in the main, about Iranian aggression. Iranian troops have not left Iran for four or 500 years. There's no history of a Iranian aggression, cross-border attacks against neighboring countries in modern or even uh, pre-modern history. What they're concerned about is Iranian subversion, Iranian terrorism, Iranian support for dissident movements in their own societies, for Shia, in, uh, in the Sunni societies, for the rejectionist elements within the Palestinian society, for uh, groups like Hamas and Hezbollah. That's what uh, Iran's neighbors are concerned about, including Israel. I mean, Israel isn't concerned that Iran, Iranian forces will cross Iraq, Syria, and Jordan and then enter Israel. That's not what they're afraid of. They're afraid that an emboldened Iran will begin to provide even more support to, to factions like Hamas and Hezbollah. Um, uh, so uh, what, what effect is, uh, is Iranian, um, uh, is, a, is a nuclear Iran likely to have? I, I think it's, it's reasonable to assume that they might become more adventurous. But one also has to look at what effect uh, a, uh, what degree of influence in Iran that had been a victim of an unprovoked Israeli or American attack would it have more influence with Shia elements? Would it have more influence with dissident Palestinian elements? Would it, in fact, gain support among Muslim populations, even uh, Sunni populations in neighboring societies? Would it be harder to contain that kind of malign influence uh, than it would, in fact, to contain the influence of an Iran that had nuclear weapons but continued to be an international pariah, isolated, penalized, um, and, uh, and, uh, and, and, severe, and, and, and severely uh, subjected to international pressures. Um, our own view is that uh, an Iran that had, been an unprovoked, that had received an unprovoked attack would, ha would be more difficult to contain in the sense of containing its influence than even Iran that had nuclear weapons. That's not to say that we shouldn't be seeking to prevent Iran from, nuclear, uh, from achieving nuclear weapons, and I think there's a reasonable chance that we could do so. Uh, there are sort of three levels of objectives with respect to Iran. One is that they, they stop short of actually manufacturing, testing, and deploying nuclear weapons. Um, uh, that's where they are now. 
um, and uh, the negotiations that are currently underway are designed to hold them at that point. The second is that, they, that they're rolled back to the point where they're in full adherence with the NPT. And um, I think that's probably more than we're likely to get with the current Iranian regime, but I think it's feasible in a, some successor regime with more moderate, more reasonable people. The third objective, which is the stated American and Western objective for most of the last decade, is that they actually abandon efforts to develop a nuclear fuel cycle and not, see, not only cease enrichment, but destroy their current enrichment facilities. This isn't going to happen under any Iranian regime. There's broad support, including in the democratic opposition in Iran, for that program, and it's a simply infeasible uh, objective. Um, in taking the position that we do, that, um, uh, that, that an Iranian uh, nuclear capability is unacceptable, we in effect are failing to put in place the kind of uh, persuasive instruments that would actually discourage them from crossing that threshold. Iran is presumably developing or at least uh, creating the capability of developing nuclear weapons for some combination of power, influence, and prestige. If we're going to persuade them not to cross that threshold, we need to persuade them that they will have less power, less influence, and less prestige if they do so, that they will be even more isolated, even more penalized, even more of an international pariah, and even more susceptible to internal dissent and, and, and internally uh, generated regime change if they cross that threshold than if they don't. And refusing to acknowledge the, as a possibility that they might makes it more difficult for us to mount those kinds of arguments. Um, so I think our focus uh, should be, as I think it largely is in the administration, to make sure they don't go any further, that they're halted where they are, and that over the long term we can, bring to, we can begin to bring them back to full compliance um, with the NPT. But we do conclude that the threats uh, of use of force and indeed the use of force would not serve our purposes uh, in this uh, effort. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about these issues and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries.